In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, good morning, Christ Church. Good to be with you this morning. I'm Pastor Andrew, one of the pastors here at Christ Church, and we are indeed diving into the story once again. Uh, for those of you who already have a copy, uh, fantastic, awesome, wonderful. Um, if you don't have a copy yet and you'd like one, you can pick them up on Amazon. They're pretty cheap. You can pick one up used. And if you are just uh, want to get started right away, you just can't wait. We've got a bunch of these little, uh, they've got just a selection of the Life of Jesus chapters. They're upstairs in the library. You can go ahead and grab one of these before you go to Today and start reading and getting into it right away. So would invite you to start getting engaged once again or for the very first time in this story as we are going to be tracking the entire New Testament this summer. It's going to be a sprinting pace. We are going to fly. Uh, and speaking of flying, we're going to fly through this morning the entire Old Testament. So I got like 10 minutes to take you all through the Old Testament and bring you up to speed where we are. Are you ready? Okay, this is going to be the fastest blitz of scriptural study you've done in a while. Here we go. Um, we are going to be looking at the story from the context and understanding of who God is in relation to the ongoing story. What I mean by that is the story begins with creation. The story in the very beginning starts with the main character, the author, the one whom the story is truly ultimately about, and that main character I hate to break it to you, isn't you, it's actually God. God is the main character in the big story. Uh, we just went through a sermon series about divine direction. And in that process, we talked about how God is working on a kind of an upper level, on a big picture. This is what we're talking about with the story as well. That God is working as the main character and author in writing a story. And what's amazing is that even though he's the main character of this story, there are a bunch of minor characters who are tremendously important to accomplishing that story. That's where you and I 
join in with the story. You see, we are a part of this great God story. But the story begins with God simply creating. He kicks it off by creating the heavens and the earth and sends it into uh, the future he has for it. Unfortunately, just as like there's a good guy, a protagonist with every story, there is indeed an antagonist to this story. There's a bad guy. There's evil that is a part of this story. There is evil in our world. There's evidence of it. And evil in the story, shortly after creation happens, mucks everything up. The story starts nice, and then it takes a nosedive. And there are problems. God creates heaven and earth. He creates humanity. And evil tempts humanity and messes with humanity in such a way that evil's taint becomes part of the human experience. And so though even though God starts with a beautiful, clean, fantastic, incredible creation, it shortly thereafter gets twisted and influenced by evil. Well, that's a bummer. God is not satisfied by that. God is not pleased by that. He has created and he seeks to reconcile and redeem the creation that he just made that is now tainted by evil. As evil begins to increase in the world, as people increase, so does evil tend to increase. And so as creation begins to increase, as people increase, as evil increases, God does something unexpected he begins to actually narrow his focus. He decides to go to one guy. He comes to one guy named Abraham. You guys ever heard of Abraham before? Okay, Father Abraham. You all saying that at one point or another? God comes to this guy named Abraham. And when he comes to Abraham, he says, Abraham, I'm going to begin my rescue plan. I'm going to begin redeeming and reconciling. I'm going to pull creation back to myself and defeat evil through you and your descendants. Through you, Abraham, I am going to end up blessing and forgiving and reconciling not just you and your family, but all the earth. You can see it there. All the families on earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. And so Abraham all of a sudden becomes kind of our our hugely important uh, person in our story, in the story, as God begins to work through Abraham and his descendants. Now, unfortunately, Abraham himself does not escape the taint of evil, the reality of evil. And so Abraham, Abraham's children, Abraham's grandchildren, and so on, also make a mess of their lives in this world. A couple generations later, unfortunately, the world is so messed up and messy, all of Abraham's descendants end up being slaves. They are slaves, they're hanging out in Egypt, and life stinks. For all intents and purposes, they're looking around saying, God, what gives? I thought you were going to do something awesome through Abraham. You promised. And God says, I am. I did promise. And so he sends a gentleman named Moses. Y'all heard of Moses before? Okay. Moses, Charlton Heston, same guy, nearly. So Moses comes and frees God's people. 
God frees God's people through the help and through the, the person of Moses, and it seems like things start to get back on track, that, that there seems to be a trajectory for the story with a good ending. To help ensure that, God comes to Moses and says, Moses, when I came to Abraham and I promised that I would be his God, that wasn't quite enough to protect you from the taint, from evil. And so now I'm going to give you the law. I'm going to give you 613 laws that I want you to follow to help protect you from evil that seems to just be running rampant by now. These laws are going to hedge you and protect you. They're going to help you make wise decisions, and they're going to keep you and me in harmony. And so God gives them the 613 laws. Out of the 613, you've probably heard of the Big Ten. You all know what I'm talking about with the Big Ten? The Ten Commandments. Very good. So God gives God's people then the Ten Commandments. You have Abraham's promise. And now you have, through Moses, a set of laws that are supposed to help protect and preserve God's people from evil. Unfortunately, the evil is so great and so deep that the laws themselves begin to be misused, abused. Uh, Have you ever noticed that we as people have a real knack for turning things to our own advantage? We seem to be highly motivated at doing that. Well, God gives us these laws, and the people found a way to kind of manipulate what God had originally intended. For all intents and purposes, the law doesn't seem strong enough to save God's people. So, since the law didn't work, the people come up with their own idea. They say, God, you and your laws didn't work, so how about this? Give us a king. Because a king is going to work. Your laws didn't work. Asterisk, we chose not to follow them. But even so, the laws didn't work. Give us a king, and hopefully the king will work. Along comes a famous guy named King David. We're going with David. It's true that Saul came first. For those biblical readers, I heard it out there. Good job. You knew that. But shortly thereafter, you go from Saul to David. Uh, David is, is the big king whom the Jewish people remember, uh, the, the one that's kind of associated with the golden years. If you're a Jewish person, person to this very day, uh, they, they continue to talk and appreciate and value the legacy of King David. David is that uh, gentleman that, that is heralded as a man after God's own heart. Maybe you've heard of that before. The scriptures hold David in very high regard. And in the process of this, uh, God comes to David, and uh, through the relationship with David, God makes a promise to David. He reiterates the promise that he made more or less to Abraham. He says, David, I'm ultimately in charge, and I'm going to rescue my people. In fact, I'm going to rescue the whole world, and I promise to do it through Abraham's descendant, which you are. And so he reiterates the promise saying, I'm going to give a king like no other king who's going to come from your bloodline. One of your descendants, David, is going to be a king who reigns over all the other kings. This guy's kingdom is going to last forever and ever and ever. Amen. The kingdom that I'm going to establish through your heir is to substantiate and bless 
the entire creation that I've originally intended. This is a pretty big promise, yes? That's pretty big. He gives that promise to David. Unfortunately, shortly after King David, King David and his descendants are not free from evil's taint. They are not free from brokenness. So what do you imagine happens? Things get nasty and bad again. So, a couple empires, some nasty dudes farther out east, come crawling on in on God's people, on David's historic kingdom, and they take over. It gets really bad. It's this big period in God's people's lives that's really challenging. It's called the exile. And during the exile, where foreign oppressors are ruling, there's a couple of guys named prophets, we just call them the prophets, who start running around in the midst of all this depression and struggle that the people are dealing with. I mean, the Jewish people are looking at it and they're saying, man, God promised Abraham and we still haven't gotten this whole blessing thing figured out. The Moses thing didn't pan out the way we planned. And even the King David thing, that's all gone now. There's a foreign empire who rules. God, what gives? And these prophets start running around saying, remember the promises. Remember that God is the main character. And that God will do and accomplish what he has said and promised. You're just a minor character in the story. And so they prophesy. It's a fancy way of saying they speak truth. And one of the big truths that they speak is to remind people of the coming king. You can see an example from Micah 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, boy, I butchered that, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel, a king, will come from you one whose origins are from the distant past, one who's tied to, whose thread weaves all the way back to the beginning. And so, that's the Old Testament. Hey, (laughs) that's basically it. You're up to speed now. You feel good? That's it. That's the Old Testament. Brings us up to this point because after the prophets... The prophets run around telling people that God's still working. God's still going to accomplish what God's going to accomplish. God made promises. They run around, they do that, and then everything goes radio silence. Goes down. Out. Nobody starts talking. It's this intermission, if you will. It's this chunk of time, and it's long. they got to hang out for a long time trusting that God is still at work. During that time period, I mentioned before how other governments had come in. It's just like, oh my goodness, you feel bad for these people. One government after another takes over. The Assyrians had come in. The Babylonians swallowed up the Assyrians. The Persians come in and take over the Babylonians. The Seleucids, the Greeks, the Greeks come in after them. Uh, There's a brief stint where the the Jewish people have like a rah-rah-rah moment. They declare independence for themselves. They throw a revolt. And then the Romans come in and they take over. So it's back to square one again. Basically, it's like almost like 700 years of still trying to wait for that coming king, that new King David, where a foreign power rules. Wah-wah. I mean, do you imagine that? Seven 
generation after generation, 700 years of silence, of not hearing from prophets, of not seeing in an overt way God's radical activity, simply waiting, waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. It's little wonder why those 700 years began to shape the way people expected the promise to go. They began to imagine and dream of what that coming king would begin to look like. He began to take on a certain persona. He he seemed to take on specific characteristics. Most notably, that he would save them from all these governments. He'd bring back King David's kingdom. He would establish the boundaries. He would declare independence for the Jewish people. And they would establish what it is to be God's nation. This is what they were hanging out day after day waiting for. This week it's July 4th, right? We, we celebrate July 4th. It's Independence Day 241 years ago. We as a nation established our independence. And thanks to people like George Washington, it actually happened. This is what the Jewish people were waiting for. They're waiting for George Washington to walk down the road and rescue them. To throw up the banners, start marching, and kick out the bad guys and establish God's kingdom that will last forever. They were waiting and watching for George Washington. Their expectations were pretty specific. They wanted a king, someone they associated with power, uh, armies, uh, influence, uh, charisma. They're looking for someone who's definitively tied to the royal line. So, I mean, you got to figure this guy's got to be a governor's son or something like that. He's got to be the, the kid of a president. I mean, somebody important. This guy better be tied to some important family of influence, right? And that, that once he is in power, he would rule. He would be just. He would be decisive. He would, he would bring down the law on people. Man, this guy would give no slack, and he would be... Mm, Right there, he would rule with an iron scepter, the iron fist, and he would establish what it is to be God's people again. That's the kind of king they're looking for. He'd be a little bit more than that. He'd also be this priest. There's this whole faith element. The people are waiting and watching for, for a theocratic government, a theocracy. And as part of the government, uh, you see this in modern-day uh, Iran. Iran is a good example of a the- theocracy where there is uh, the blending of government and religion. This is what the Jewish people were waiting for. And as part of this, this new king would be zealous. He'd be enthusiastic. He'd be all about the faith, the Jewish faith. He'd be all over that. He would be holy, special, never make mistakes, never mess up. He'd be a good guy. And ultimately... He would live by the 613 laws again. You remember those from way back when that didn't quite work the way we thought they'd work? He would bring those back. And in a snapshot, this king would be the intermediary between people and God, representing the people before God. And then Christmas happened. It seems a little silly to celebrate Christmas in July. Interestingly enough, uh, academics and historians believe Jesus was actually born in the month of July. This obscure, helpless child entered the world 
upending all the expectations that the people had. I'll remind you, here's a reading from Luke. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in snuggly strips of cloth. She laid him in a manger, because there was no lodging available for them. God took a definitive step in the story, but it was honestly a major plot twist. It was not what the people expected. It's true that Jesus came, and as he came, he was a king. But rather than oozing power and influence, he came as a helpless child, totally vulnerable. So vulnerable that shortly after he was born, his parents had to take him and smuggle him out of the country for fear that he would be killed. He, he, he came in, in obscurity. No one knew about him. I mean, the guy couldn't even get a hotel room. This, this poor kid was born in total anonymity, obscurity. He, he wasn't born to an influential or wealthy family. He wasn't born to a, to a royal family when we picture royal family. He was born to a teenage girl and a craftsman, a guy who worked with his hands, the average Joe. He worked down at Home Depot. That's what he was born to. He's not the president's son. He's the son of the guy that checks you out at Home Depot. That's the kind of person he, he came as. And while it's true that he rules and he reigns, he does so in a way that serves others. Rather than keeping power and influence and all for himself, this small child grows up to give power and influence away. It's true that he's a priest, that he's someone that is zealous, zealous for the faith and for God. But interestingly enough, his, zealous, his zealousness and enthusiasm is, is for people who are poor, who are marginalized, who are on the outside. Not, not the priests and all that sort of stuff, but for the people who are outside of the church and the temple. He, he, he comes and, and, and he's hanging out with unholy people. Not special holy people, but unholy people he breaks bread with. And rather than reinst reinstituting the law, he reinterprets the law. Even as a child. There's a story where he goes to Jerusalem and he ends up hanging out with all the rabbis and teachers and they're amazed at his wisdom, amazed at his insight as he helps them understand the real heart of the law. You see, in as much as people expected him to represent people before God, the king who came represented God before people. That's God's story and the plot twist. It's not what we expected. It's not what we anticipated. 
but it's how God chose to act. This is true so much not only in the great grand story, the big story, but in our own lives. God often works in surprising and unexpected ways. Things that we don't anticipate. Things that, that, that on the outside don't always make sense. And yet when we see and look at how God has worked in the big God story, it should not surprise us. God doesn't come to judge us or strike us down. He comes and he surprises us with grace and forgiveness. God doesn't come at us with wrath, but he comes at us with compassion. God surprises us by by the people that he introduces us to and the relationships that form and where we find meaning and hope. God so often surprises and upends our expectations. And yet that is how he chooses to work. As we begin this story and re-enter ourselves into talking about it and looking at it, I invite you not to come to the story with all of your previous expectations of how God should or should not work, whether it be should or should not work in the Bible or should or should not work in your own life. And instead... See how God might be at work in your story. See how God works in the big story. And let that be enough. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks that in your wondrous story of creation and thereafter, you have promised to reconcile and redeem us. And though you work in unanticipated and in and unexpected ways, open our eyes to see your activity, to see how you continue to work, not only to know and understand how you have worked in the scriptures, in the story that we seek to know and understand, but also in our own personal stories. Open our eyes up to see how you are working in marvelous and unexpected ways, ways that you challenge us, but also redeem and forgive and renew us. Open our eyes to see how you are a part of our story and how we are a part of yours. Jesus, we ask and pray this in your name.